If you have your Bibles, whether it's electronically on your phone or whether you have the actual book, or if you're here today and you don't have a Bible, we're going to post our scriptures in the front so that you can see them. I'm going to ask that you would turn to 1 Kings chapter 19. And, and today, the topic of this that we're going to draw from scriptures, how does God speak to us in our disappointments? Have any of you ever been disappointed? I think that this is going to apply to everybody today. How does God speak to us in our disappointments? From 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 1 through 18, and now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done, how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of them. Elijah was afraid ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there. While he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, he came to a broom bush and sat down under it and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. All at once, an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. And the Lord came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, put your prophets to death with the sword, and I am the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart, shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And the wind, after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant. They've torn down your altars. They put your prophets to death with the sword. And I'm the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said to him, go back the way you came. Go back to the desert of Damascus. And when you get there, anoint Haziel, king over Aram. And anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, king over Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel-Mola, to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Haziel, and Elisha will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bound down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. Lord, I pray that you would take the totality of these verses and that through the leading of your Holy Spirit that you would begin to reveal some very personal things to each of our lives not only as we examine the life of Elijah in a very discouraging moment, but how we might apply these in our discouraging moments. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Many say that we are living in a 
the middle of a post-Christian age, and, or in some cases a, an anti-Christian age, particularly in America. And yet it surprises me more and more that the more conversations I have that there are more people who are finding that they have a desire within them to discover more about their spiritual life. They have a real hunger for the divine or the real hunger for the spiritual. But because we live in a pluralistic or in a globalized society, seekers now find that they are presented with the option of many different faiths, the option of many different gods, multiple religions, multiple ways in which they are seeking to try to find the whole, to fill the hole in their spiritual life. And the question that we face today in so many different places is, is no longer can I believe in God, but the question for many is which God should I believe in or which God is right for me? Which God out of all of the choices out there will fit the way that I want to live and fit my lifestyle? And the reason that I've gone back to Elijah this morning is because the prophets lived very much in a time that would be similar to the time that we live in. The prophets served during a time when most people were surrounded by gods, all kinds of gods and all kinds of faith. And their question is, how do I choose? How do I discern the spirits? How do I discern among all of the competing spiritual claims and all of the options, how do I know which God is the real God? How do I know out of all of these options which one is genuine? And as we examine Elijah's life and his words, we learn what the difference is between the real God and how he begins to address things within our life and the fake gods that are at work within our world as well. Now today we come to this incident in the life of Elijah and we have to remind ourselves of what the context is here. Ahab and Jezebel, the king and queen of Israel, had established idolatry and especially the worship of Baal as the official religion of Israel. Elijah, the prophet of the Lord, dramatically appears before the people and he tells them all, the whole country, come and meet me at Mount Carmel and we are going to have a contest to see who is the real God and who is the fake God. And Elijah basically is taunting them and saying, my God can be your God, and I'm going to prove it. Now, this would be the equivalent in our day and age, and certainly of our community here, of, of one of us saying, I have rented out this stadium on Syracuse University, and we're going to invite the whole town to come out and take your seat there, and we're going to have a God contest to see who is the real God and who are the fake gods. And then we pray and see everything that takes place. And so the whole country of Israel comes out to this contest place, and Elijah lets them do their thing first, and you know the story. For those of you that know the Bible, they pray all day, they dance, they cut themselves, nothing happens. He, he starts taunting them like maybe your God's going to the bathroom, you know, maybe he's on a journey, maybe he can't hear you, and then at the end of that, he saturates his offering and prays down fire, and God not only burns up the sacrifice, but he burns the wood and he melts the stone and actually burns up the ground. And suddenly, all of the people who were there fall down on their face, the Bible says, and they begin to scream out, the Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. 
Elijah has essentially done what you and I would want to do if we could dream up a great contest against all the fake gods of the world. And in the middle of that, it tells us in 1 Kings 18, 46, that the power of the Lord came upon Elijah, and tucking his cloak into his belt, he ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. Now, now if you're, you're not familiar with what's going on here, that's a sentence that just flies by. But here's what I want you to know. Why would Elijah go to Jezreel? Remember, he has been hiding for months because they were all looking for him because they wanted to kill him. Jezreel is the capital at the time, and Elijah was a marked man. Ahab and Jezebel have been looking for him, paying people to try to find him because they wanted to kill him. And instead, he walks right into the capital of the nation where he knows that there's a price on his head. And we look at that, and we say, why would he do that? And here's the reason. After this miracle of power... Elijah expected that Ahab and Jezebel would humble themselves and repent, that after seeing the power of God versus the power of Baal, that he was going to walk into the city and that this powerful political couple was going to be completely changed in nature and that everything was going to be turned around. Or he believed that after the people were falling on their face just a few days ago, crying out, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God, that when he went into the capital city that the people would have overthrown Ahab and Jezebel and set up new altars for the Lord God. He expected that God would do something after this mighty display of power and that the faith of Israel would be utterly changed or he would never have gone to the capital. And the moment that he gets there, Jezebel sends him a message that basically says, may I be struck dead if you're not dead by tomorrow. And suddenly, everything that he expected to happen hadn't happened, and fear entered into his heart. In fact, the Bible says it was with great disappointment that Elijah runs off into the desert and that he runs to Mount Horeb. And we look at this and say, Why? Why is he doing this? Why did he run away after this unbelievable demonstration of the power of God? Because number one, he's confused. Number two, he is upset with God. Now, I, I say this because I don't know how many of you have ever been here, but I have been upset with God before. Elijah was upset. God, you didn't do things the way I wanted you to do them. And now I'm confused. I don't even know who you are anymore, God. And he runs out into the desert and he says, I'm going to run someplace, and you're going to have to show me who you are. This is what we experience when what we expect God to do and what He does are different things. The reason that we feel spiritual disappointment is because I had a plan in my mind, and I thought God was going to do this, and He didn't, and now I don't even know who God is anymore. I'm so discouraged and I'm so disappointed. So deep was Elijah's disappointment with God that he says, I have done absolutely everything that I can possibly do. And the, not only are the nation's leaders unshaken, they don't even want me alive anymore. They weren't even impressed. The people didn't rise up. There's no coup to overthrow Ahab and, Jerob, uh, and Jezebel. There's not even a small demonstration in the, in the city with people walking around with signs saying, we want God back. None of this happened, God. 
after the greatest miracle that the Bible talks about, the people did nothing. Nothing happened. And he runs off into the desert in tremendous disappointment. But what we learn from here on out in this passage tells us about how God deals with our disappointment. And what we learn is that we begin to see God in a very personal way as Elijah learns about who God is. The first thing that we see here is God's tremendous wisdom, tremendous wisdom in dealing with his disappointment. When Elijah runs off, what we see is the man of God cracking under the weight of despair. Elijah is in complete despair. It says, Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. He's scared when Jezebel sends him the message that just a few hours before, he is taunting them. And now he is running. And the reason is because he had shot his big gun. He had done his thing. He's out of ideas. He's out of strength. He's out of miracles. He's done everything that he could do, and he couldn't change Israel's mind. And he couldn't change the leadership's heart. And now he's spent. We don't know how spent he is until we get to a part, another little sentence that says that he let his servant go. He left him in a city and he went on without him. Now, if you understand this, if he was a rich man and had a servant, that's one thing. But he's a prophet of God. And so the servant here indicates that would be like church staff members. He just fired his staff. He said, I quit the ministry. I'm done with this. I'm out of the ministry, and my career is over. And then in verse 4, he sits under a tree, and he prays that God would take his life. I know without a shadow of a doubt that within this room, or certainly those that are watching online, that there are people that in the not-too-distant past have thought about suicide. I know there's a good possibility that somebody has had things happen in your life that have so disappointed you that your thought was, there is a way that I can get out of this, and I don't want to have to carry this pain anymore, and it may be just ending my life. And I want to point out something to you about this Scripture. Elijah, even in this situation and condition, does not presume that he has the right to take his own life. It's amazing that as despondent as he is, he does not assume that he has the right. But... As any good Christian that wants out of this world will do from time to time, he says, you do it, God. How about you just let me die? Just stop my heart. Just stop my breathing. And how God deals with this despondent servant begins to speak to us about what he wants to do for us. He is in utter despair, and then God begins to treat him. And, and this is what I love about this, because we know that God is the great physician. We know that, that when we come to the altar on Sundays and we ask for prayer for healing, we're asking the physician to treat a physical condition. I also want you to know that the great physician can treat emotional conditions. The great physician can treat spiritual conditions. He can treat the whole body as we are about to learn in all of this. So what does God do with a despondent servant that is loaded with despair? The first thing he does is he shows up as an angel or he sends an angel. And when we look at this, what does the angel do? Now, if you know your Bible, when angels show up in other places, one of the first things they do is they stand in front of scared people and they go, fear not. 
If an angel shows up in front of me, I'm going to be a little freaked out about it. This angel does not yell, fear not. This angel also does not yell, I bring you good tidings of great joy. No, that's in a couple of months. We'll talk about that angel. Does the angel look at this despondent man and say, what in the world is wrong with you? You need to get up and repent because you're demonstrating you're nothing but a spiritual weakling. No. In fact, in this day and age, I really find it interesting that the angel didn't even sit down next to him and say, you want to talk about your feelings? How are you feeling, Elijah? None of that. The first thing that God does is He cooks. The angel of the Lord cooks. And then the Scripture says that after cooking, He touches him. Now, I will admit to you that this is different than what we Christians are used to. Because for many of us, when we are in the middle of discouragement, when we are in the middle of despondency or spiritual depression, and we come and talk to our Christian friends, we have a checklist that we begin to run through. That if you're having a spiritual problem, then let's just run through the checklist. Have you confessed all your sin to God? Check. Um, Have you prayed more in faith? Maybe that's the issue with you. Check. Have you rebuked the devil and told him, I refuse to receive this? Check. Well, have you pled the blood of Jesus over the situation? Check. Maybe you just need to claim all of the promises of God. Check. And then when we're running out of list, we're going, well, maybe you just need to stand here and thank Him because the answer is on the way. And you're laughing because we've all gone through this list. Check. But here's the way I love how God demonstrates the reality of who He is And it gives us peace as Christians when we're talking to others about God because the first thing that he does here is he recognizes Elijah has a physical nature and he lives in a physical world. And sometimes, and and I'm going to say this, and let me, I'm going to say this just like I did the first service. If you take this piece out of my message and use this against me, I'm coming after you. We live in a snippet society, and you can take different little pieces out of something, and it will completely be taken out of context, and this is one of those. But listen closely. Living in a physical world, sometimes what you need is not prayer. Sometimes what you need is not a lecture. Sometimes what you need is not a sermon. Sometimes what you need is a walk on the beach. Sometimes what you need is a great meal at a good restaurant. Sometimes what you need is to sleep in. Sometimes what you need is completely physical. And I love it that God starts here. And it's not just the physical nature that He touched, because He knows He needs something like that, but we also have a relational nature that God addresses in this moment, because He not only cooks Him something, the Bible says that He touches him. He reaches over with a calm hand and and just gradually wakes him up. And, And within the touch of God through this angel indicates that sometimes what we need is a hug. And there's this moment of interaction that takes place here because God is saying, I I know that what you need right now is a good meal and you need my nearness. 
before anything else. He starts there. And some of you are creative, and the idea of what healing looks like to you might be that you need to go to an art museum. Some of you just need really good music that can inspire you. Some of you need to read a really terrific book, a fiction book. If you're despondent, don't go to the how-to section and pick up a book on how to get out of despondency. Because God understands all of our natures in all of that. But do you see how God treats this depressed man? It's with multidisciplinary approach. He treats him with understanding and all of the dimensions of his life in which he lives. He's a physical being, he's a relational being, and he's a spiritual being. And we see all of these in the way that he treats. So the first thing God does is he cooks. The second thing he does is he listens. In verse 9, he asks the question, what are you doing here, Elijah? Now, you need to know that when God asks you a question, it's not because He doesn't know the answer. He's not looking for information from you, but what He wants you to do is to begin to verbalize the information that you need to recognize. And if you'll look carefully, you will see that for a long time, all God does is just listen. He, he gets him started, and, and Elijah begins to speak out, and as he's answering God of why he is there, he begins to fill his answer with inaccurate information that he thought was accurate as he's talking about it. He says, first of all, I've been very zealous. In other words, God, my program was perfect. You let me down. Then he says, no one is left but me. Basically, since I just quit the ministry, you don't have a team anymore, God. Huh, let's see how you can get along without me. And God just lets him express himself, lets him get all the emotion out. Sometimes you just need to tell God how you feel, whether it's right or wrong. But eventually, the third thing God does is he speaks. Sometimes we expect him to speak first. Sometimes we say, Lord, I need to hear your voice. And he goes, no, you need to eat first. You need to rest first. You need to get it off your chest first, and then you'll be prepared to hear me when I finally have something to say to you. And he says to Elijah, you need to hear my voice. You need to be in my presence. You need to come where I am because I want to minister to your spiritual nature. And this is... This is the first point, but just let me summarize this here, because if you are a person that is here today or you're watching online and you are trying to discover which God am I going to serve in this world, is, is the God of Christianity, is the God of the Bible the, the real God, then I want you in your thought process to examine the wisdom of this God of the Bible who treats the whole person. He understands your multidimensional needs and He will meet you where you are because God comes in consummate wisdom. And the second thing we learn about this is that when God comes, He comes in humbling multiplicity. Elijah takes off and runs to Mount Horeb. And while he is there, we look at this and say, why is Mount Horeb called the mountain of God? For those of you that, that have studied the Bible, you probably understand that Mount Horeb, this is not the most famous name for this mountain. It's also Mount Sinai. And when you think about Mount Sinai being the mountain of God and that this was just a different name for it, you're understanding that Elijah is running to Mount Sinai. And when he gets to Mount Sinai, he goes into what it says is a cave. But that can also be accurately translated in Hebrew as a hollow or a cleft. 
How many of you have heard of a cleft of the rock? In fact, if you will remember, centuries before Moses went up on that mountain and he said to God, I want to see your glory. And he said to God, I want to know who you really are and I want to see what you really look like. And in Exodus 33:22, God tells Moses, get into the cleft of that rock and I will pass by. Now, as I was doing some research on this, commentators again and again said, it is entirely possible, if not probable, that Elijah went to the same cleft of the rock that Moses had centuries before. And in that same place, he says to God the same thing, I want to see you pass by. And God says, okay. But here is what we learn in this chapter that is absolutely fascinating. It's that God shows up in many, many forms. And I don't know anywhere else in the Bible where you will see such a dizzying range of manifestations and appearances in one chapter as you do in this one. So first, God appears as an angel of the Lord and he cooks for him. He creates to him a bond by touch and nearness. Second, he gets to the mountain and he experiences God in an earthquake and then wind and then fire. Now, some of you will notice when you're reading this that it says God was not in those things. Let me explain to you what that means. It means that God did not speak to him out of those things. It doesn't mean that God didn't show up as those things. It just that wasn't the answer he got out of that. Because obviously, as we look at Scripture, God shows up as all of these things throughout the Bible. He is the God of the fire, and there are a number of times that he's shown up at those things. Moses is the burning, at the burning bush. To Abram in Genesis 15, he showed up as a fire pot and a flaming torch. He showed up to Job at the end of the book, and on the day of Pentecost, he shows up again as tongues of fire that rested on each of them. So obviously, God has showed up as fire. He has shown up as wind. In fact, in Acts 2, there's this sound of mighty rushing wind that takes place. He's the God of earthquakes. When Moses was on Mount Sinai receiving the Ten Commandments in Exodus 19, it was an earthquake. During Korah's rebellion in number 16, God shows up as an earthquake. Elijah experienced all of these things, and the most surprising thing out of all of it was God's voice didn't speak to him out of all the ways that he had in the past. It wasn't until those things were done and all the things that he expected God to speak to him that he hears a still small voice. And God is very gentle and very careful and incredibly patient with Elijah. And then in the end, Elijah condemns himself out of his own mouth. Elijah shows us why that he's despondent. He shows us why he's disappointed in God. He shows us why that he is depressed in God when he says this, I have been very zealous for the Lord, which means Elijah's telling God, I had the right plan. I executed it perfectly. What's wrong with you? And why didn't you finish the job the way that we had agreed you would finish the job? And secondly, he says, and I'm the only one left. And the reason we see Elijah is despondent is because he had put God in a box and said, my expectations of what you're going to do and how you're going to do it have got to fit within this. And if you don't, I'm going to be depressed and I'm going to be discouraged. And if you look at the examples, there was a time when he was overly optimistic 
He said, I saw the plan on Mount Carmel, and now God's going to capitalize on this momentum, and he's going to overthrow the rulers in, in, in the city. I'm going to go there, and everything is going to change, and God is going to take his rightful place. It was a great dream, and it was a great desire. It wasn't how God chose to do it. And so he goes into the city and nothing happened, which tells us sometimes that there are some people whose hearts you're, gonna, you're not going to be able to change, not even with the miracles of God. And nothing went as he expected. So he was overly optimistic about how God was going to do things. And then he marches into the city, nothing happens, and then he had identified God's approval with his plan. And it didn't happen. And every time you think that God is going to show up as fire, he will whisper to you. And every time you think that God's going to whisper to you, he will show up as fire. He showed up as fire to Moses in the very same spot century before. He shows up as a whisper to Elijah in the very same place. God is saying to us, I am not a tame God. I am not a God that you can put into a box. And Elijah, your assumptions about me are all wrong. And after hearing Elijah, out of God's own heart, he finally starts to talk to him. And he says to him, you were wrong about the fact that you're the only one on my team. You misunderstood that completely. You think just because you quit, my plan is done, and I'm sitting there throwing my hands up in the air going, well, I don't know what to do without Elijah. You have miscalculated, my friend. He says, because here's my plan for you. He says, I want you to go back the way you came, and I want you to anoint Haziel, king over Aram. After that, I want you to anoint Jehu, king over Israel. And then I want you to anoint Elisha to succeed you as the prophet. And God says, here's what's going to happen. Jehu will take over the battle, and anyone that escapes him, Haziel will take care of. And anyone that escapes that, then Elisha's going to clean it up. In other words, Elijah, I have been working all along. What makes you think that I don't have a plan just because it's not your plan? You are sitting here discouraged because you think I let you down, but I was doing something you knew nothing about, and you forgot that you're just a piece in my program. And Elijah is despondent because he put God in a box and was over-optimistic about how God was going to work it in his way, and then he's devastated after God tells him that you're not the only one on my team. And he turns into one that is pessimistic. And his pessimism is reflected in the assessment of his own importance. I'm the only one left. Now listen. God has to come to him and say, what do you mean you're the only one left? I've got all kinds. I've got Haziel over here that I'm going to use. I've got Jehu. I've got 7,000 who have not bowed their knee to Baal, which means that they have not kissed his idol. And listen to me closely, church. Please listen to me. There is a danger in Christianity to believe that what God is doing in our church and what God is doing in our denomination is the only right way, and that anyone who is outside of our box can't possibly be anyone that God can use. And here's the way that sounds. We're the only real Christians left, God. Look around. Look at these other churches, God. Or with Pentecostal arrogance. We're the only Pentecostals left. It's our church, God. Look. 
And in the middle of that, we put God in a box and with spiritual arrogance begin to assume that God can't use and is not doing something somewhere else. Please hear me. I'm grateful for the blessing of the Lord, but there is a danger for us to sit here and look at other churches, even in our own area, and because they do things a little differently, going, they're not real. That's not real. And believe that we begin to elevate ourselves when really we're putting ourselves in a jeopardy. In fact, when God told Elijah to go anoint Haziel as king over Aram, this is fascinating. Haziel is a pagan king. In fact, there is no evidence whatsoever in Scripture that Haziel ever became a believer. We're going, what are you doing, God? They don't believe like us. He goes, I can use anybody. I can use people that don't even believe to get my purposes across. This had to blow Elijah out of the water. I'm the only one. Nothing in Israel's worked. They're killing everybody. Now they're after me. And the Lord says, let me broaden your view just a bit. You see, Elijah, your despondency is caused by your narrow-mindedness. And to paraphrase Elizabeth Elliot in her book, Through the Gates of Splendor, God is God, and if He is God, then there is no safe place except in His will. And that will will always be immeasurably, unspeakably, infinitely beyond any of your largest notions about what God is up to. And so we see in this earthquake, wind, fire, whisper, angels cooking, listening, then a hurricane. And the whole reason that Elijah is just screwed up now is because he doesn't understand the multiplicity of God and how he works in so many different ways. And by the way, one last thing before he comes on, before we move on from this. And there's another reason that we need the community of the church. Because when, when I share my testimony with you and you share your testimony with me, we begin to see how God has brought us to this place through vastly different trails. And as a result of that, my view of God grows, my view of His power, my view of His grace, my view of, of, of the way that He sets people free. It grows when I hear your testimony because it's not exactly like mine, but it's the multiplicity of the ways that God works, and we begin to see a much bigger God who has a much bigger box than we ever dreamed. So here is Moses who comes to the very spot and asks the very same question. Show me yourself, God. And God speaks to Moses through fire. Elijah goes up to the very same place, the very same spot, and asks God the very same question. And rather than fire, he gets a whisper. Mary comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, if you had been here, my brother Lazarus would not have died. Martha, another sister, comes to Jesus and says the very same thing. Master, if you were here, my brother would not have died. Same situation, same question. Moses gets fire. Elijah gets a whisper. Mary gets to watch Jesus as he weeps. And Martha gets a lecture. I am the resurrection and the life, Martha. Different things for different people because God knows you individually. He knows how to reach you. Worship team, if you please come. When I tell you week after week that we have an intensely personal God, I want you to see that the Scriptures confirm that. 
If you always expect him to do things the way he has for others, or if you always expect him to do things the way that he has in the past, then you will never have a full, rich picture of the God of the universe who knows how to reach you exactly where you are at in a very personal way. And so when we are sharing with a world that's wondering, I've got this spiritual void in my life, how... How do I know that Jesus Christ is God? How do I know that he's the one? Then we can begin to tell them he will meet you where you are at and he will speak to you and he will prove himself to you, not in the same way he did for me, but because he knows you. And if you're here today and you're caught in this disappointment that God did not do things the way you had planned, welcome to the club of serving the God of the universe. He's way, way, way bigger than us. And he lets us express ourselves, and he gives us a good meal, and he pats us on the back and says, take a walk, read a book, listen to some good music, then come back, and I'm going to talk to you. And when I come back, I'm going to give you directions because he's never left without directions in your life.